millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Today, we will be talking about taking classes on Zoom. Before we get started, we know that ballet students and professionals alike are feeling a huge sense of missing out as we navigate this pandemic. Summer courses are being canceled across the country, and here on Conversations on Dance, we often discuss how important summer courses are for dancer development. This is why we are exploring offering Conversations on Dance Zoom classes as a way to supplement your current training regimen in an affordable way. We want to test the waters and see what kind of interest there might be. So this Thursday, May 21st, 2020 at 4 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, we will be offering a free Zoom Intermediate Advanced Ballet class for the first 10 people who email us. Sign up now to take class with me and Michael by emailing info at conversationsondancepod.com and we will send you the Zoom info. Get in touch now. During this challenging time, Emiko has launched a variety of new ways to spread some joy while we are all working from home, starting with a brand new way to shop boutiques. Online, they are bringing in-store pieces directly to you at home. Pieces will rotate weekly and be offered at a huge 20% discount. Also, check out the hashtag Yumiko at Home giveaway, where they will be raffling off one free piece every Friday. Rules apply, so be sure to go follow them on Instagram at Yumiko for all the details and a chance to win. Additional ready-to-wear and collection items will launch throughout the month of May, so stay connected at yumiko.com and at Yumiko on Instagram. I'm Rebecca King-Ferraro. And I'm Michael Breeden, and you're listening to Conversations on Dance. This week, we are continuing our conversation about teaching ballet classes online during the COVID-19 pandemic. We talk with Gavin Larson, a former principal dancer with Oregon Ballet Theater, now living in Asheville, North Carolina, where she teaches and writes about dance. After training at the School of American Ballet and Pacific Northwest Ballet School, she danced with Pacific Northwest Ballet, Alberta Ballet, and the Suzanne Farrell Ballet before joining OBT. For the first half of this episode, we get to know Gavin by chatting about her extensive career, 
Starting about 35 minutes in, we dive into how she is adapting to teaching online, how she is articulating corrections, how to combat challenges for specific students, and what positives we can take from this time. Uh, So today we are joined by Gavin Larson. Gavin, thank you so much for um, taking the time out of your day to meet us via Zoom, which is very (laughs) apropos of what we're about to talk about. Yes, Um, it sure is. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really, I've been listening to your podcast for a while now and I've really, really enjoyed them. I find them so informative and entertaining and just really great for the dance community. And so I'm really, really honored to be here. Oh, thank, thank you. you. And, and I have to say, we're, something that was really lucky, you reached out to us because um, you wanted to have a larger conversation about the um, sort of challenges of Zoom teaching, which may be with us for a while. And, mm-hmm. uh, and you know, I think it's so great that we are able to just have this conversation. Typically, Rebecca and I are, you know, in, in seven different directions, and we only really get the time to take people up on suggestions as great as yours um, now that we're in a pandemic. But yeah. uh, it is a, a, a rare bright side to this. So yeah. um, we're just, uh, we're going to go in a little bit on um, your personal career first, because uh, we'd be remiss to not. Uh, touch upon that. So we, we'll start with just sort of where we start with any of our guests, which is um, asking you when you first became interested in ballet and um, what sort of precipitated your career in dance. Okay. Uh, well, my getting into ballet story is not unusual at all. Uh, just mm-hmm. a little girl always dancing around the house whenever music goes on. And I don't remember ever specifically like one moment of being like, oh, I want to be a ballerina. I want to go to ballet class. It, I ended up, I was in like a little after school ballet tap combo thing. And I think I was into that. Um, Mm -hmm. And then I started doing a few little after school classes at um, a school on the Upper West Side of Manhattan where I grew up called the New York School of Ballet, which is, it was in the same facility where SAB and City Ballet had been back in like the 50s and 60s and on 80, between 82nd and 3rd and Broadway. I know well, that spot. It's where yeah. Barnes is now. <laughs> exactly. Every time I go in that Barnes and Noble, you feel the sort of like magic of the past. <laughs> I know. Well, it's funny. Um, so, you know, that's that was my first ballet school. Mm-hmm. And um, now that it's Barnes and Noble, every time my, my family would still go there because we're kind of a bookish family. So we'd go mm-hmm. there a lot to Barnes and Noble for books. And we'd go upstairs and my dad would be like, now right around here is where you stood at the bar. And around here is where it was. And yeah, I know. It's How really- cute. Mm -hmm. Um, So I I started, stumbled into classes there. And actually at first I didn't really take. um, And so I tried some gymnastics instead, you know, your basic after school program of that. And um, the coach of the gymnastics program was like really kind of excited about me and was like, you know, telling my parents that she's got all this potential. She's really flexible and like, you know, naturally coordinated and strong and, and I, I was terrified of gymnastics. I hated it. I was like, I hated being upside down and backwards and like flipping over the vault was just terrifying. And so that didn't last. And somehow I ended up back in ballet, back at the New York School of Ballet. And that time it really did stick. And I had, they had some very, very good teachers, even though it was you know, very much a recreational school. And um, Unfortunately, when the building was bought by Barnes and Noble or the rent went up or however it happened, whatever precipitated the school had to close. And um, the teachers there 
told my parents that, you know, if, if she's wants to continue, she should really audition for the school of American ballet because that's, you know, that's the best school just about in the country. And it's right here in New York. And I don't think I knew what it was. I don't think I'd heard of it, but my parents maybe slightly had, we'd all gone to see city ballets nutcracker like mm-hmm. ages before when I was really small. So I think they vaguely knew what it was. Um, so we went down to Lincoln Center one day and I auditioned. And this a little bit after school here had started. So they'd already had their big open um, audition for everybody. So they, but they held like ongoing ones during the week mm-hmm. for people kind of later on. And so I went one Wednesday afternoon and maybe just half a dozen of us were in there with like Toomey and Madame Glemoff and um, mm-hmm. El Corso and, you know, all of them, mm-hmm. all of us, the crew, <laughs> the crew right, right. and, and I, they, you know, called us in the office and said, well, she should, she can start in children's four tomorrow. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and my mom and I were like, Oh, well, okay. I guess we I will. Guess. <laughs> 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 and so that happened. And, um, I, yeah, started at SAB. I was 11 and fourth division and stayed up until D and when I was 17 and the rest kind of unfolded from there. Uh, so what was the, the first company that you danced with professionally after your time at SAB? So the first company I joined was Pacific Northwest Ballet. And um, that kind of came about because, you know, year-round students at SAB are not actually, at the time, maybe it's different now, um, we're not actually allowed to stay there for the summer. We right. all had to go away. Yeah. And mm-hmm. so that was like the big thing. Every spring, like, ooh, are you going to go for the summer? And so I auditioned mm-hmm. all the schools and um, I got into PNB. And so I started going there when I was 14, the summer that I was 14. And, you know, I was really enjoying it at SAB. I, I, I really loved it. I was just hooked. But going to Pacific Northwest Ballet School for that summer was like really eye-opening. And I just felt completely different there than I did at SAB. Not that I had really felt bad at SAB, but at the PMB school, it was like such a different atmosphere. And I, it, this sounds wrong, but it was like, it was more friendly. Mm-hmm. And Same, yeah, yeah, I felt um, like the teachers were really interested in me. They were really encouraging. Um, like the whole atmosphere in the class was different. And I just, I don't want to, I'm not bad mouthing SAB because I, I don't want to do that. And it's not, it didn't have a bad experience there at all. It was mm-hmm. I wouldn't trade it for the world, but it was just really different. And I think what it triggered in me was a realization that personality wise, I might thrive better in a different environment. Right. Anyway, so I did that the next summer and then the next summer. And by then, uh, Ken Francia, who were the directors at the time, um, they, we had conferences at the end of each year and, um, and they, they asked me what my long-term plans were and what companies I was interested in and, and I, I said, well, I don't really know, but I really like it here. <laughs> and, and they said, well, we, we might be interested in, you know, considering you for our company, you know, when you finish at SAB. And, um, you know, they often, usually they wanted students to come and be at their school year round before they right. would consider them or be an apprentice. Um, but they were really uh, recognized, you know, cognizant of the fact that my living at home with my parents all through my teenage years was a really valuable thing. And they didn't want me to sacrifice that just you know they said you're getting fantastic training at SAB you're with your family that's super important and rare and 
you need to continue that. Um, but let's stay in touch and, you know, audition for us when you're ready for to, when you're done with high school. Mm-hmm. And so I did. Uh, senior year of high school, I went to the, the open, the audition in New York, and they they kept everybody. And then at the end of the audition, they're calling off numbers, and they didn't call mine. And I was like, oh, no, God. Like, I was really getting excited about this. Mm-hmm. I got to know the company really well. Um, I got into a lot of the dancers because I lived with uh, Patricia Barker and her husband, Michael. They were mm-hmm. like my surrogate parents. And wow. like, oh, my God, I'm crushed. Like, I didn't get in. Shoot. And now what should I do? And and then at the very end, they're like, oh, yeah. And, and Gavin, can we talk to you? Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> so, I know. Froze and... And so they, they said, you know, we, we'd like to have you join our company. Um, and it was, it was amazing. They originally offered me an apprentice contract, but then a few weeks later called and said that things had shifted around in, in what they had available. And they actually wanted me to join as a core member. Wow. And so, yeah. So I went from SAB level D to being a core member at PNB mm-hmm. in like a matter of a couple months. And um, yeah, yeah. I have to commend you because I think that it's really hard for young kids, you know, in their training to not sort of stick to um, whatever company their school is associated with, like Mm -hmm. no matter what, even if you, you know, to have the sort of self-awareness that you could be like, you know, maybe something is better for me personality wise. Um, I think most of us that maybe don't end up at the place that we wanted. You know, I went to SAB too and very much wanted to be in New York City Ballet. But then, you know, in retrospect, can look back and say, my career, I think, should have or could have only happened at Miami City Ballet. But I didn't know that when I was a teenager. <laughs> so right. I'm, I'm jealous that you knew that. So <laughs> yeah, I, I, People have asked me that a lot. Like, didn't you want to be in New York City Ballet? And, you know, were you heartbroken that you didn't get asked to join City Ballet? And you know, when I was younger at SAB, that was like everyone, of course, that was it. Mm-hmm, Just right. City Ballet, everything was that. And and that was the true case for me, too. And um, like, you know, I was in Nutcracker and Midsummer and Capella and as a child with City Ballet. And so I was like mm-hmm. backstage at New York State Theater and got to know all of these dancers that not got to know, but, you know, watch them and idolize right. them. And yeah, I did want to be in New York City Valley. But then when I got to be a teenager and I started to like know myself a little bit better, I realized that I would not have thrived there at all. I would have been mm-hmm. terrified, miserable. My career never would have gone anywhere because that's not, I do much better in smaller groups. Um, I do, you know, socially and professionally. I need, I learned that I needed like, I needed mentorship. I needed one person or you know someone did like take me by the hand and help me mm-hmm. along as a dancer and I don't think that really would have happened at City Ballet it doesn't seem right. to me like absolutely the culture and um yeah so I I'm I was like really relieved that I had this other like option it was like oh my gosh like there are other companies out there and they're great right. and they do all these balancing ballets and right so it's like the same the same type of stuff that I wanted to dance but just in a place that was going to suit me better. Right. 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 So then you went on to dance at Suzanne Farrell Ballet and also ultimately ended up at OBT as a principal. So can you tell us a little bit about the rest of your career trajectory um, that led you to those two companies? Yeah. Well, there was actually a, another company in there too. So I was at PNB mm-hmm. for seven years mm-hmm. and um, 
you know, I was, I was really ambitious. I was in the corps of ballet and I, I, Oh, you know, right away, like I wanted to do stuff. I wanted to not be in the corps forever. And I got some nice solo parts from time to time. And, um, but I was still in the corps and I started by the, you know, maybe year three or four or five, my, some of my peers started to pass me by and I was getting frustrated and I was like, what's going on? Like, why am I not getting more staff? You know? And I never really got much feedback about exactly what it could do or how to do it. And I just, I was feeling really lost, even though, you know, I had, it was smaller than smaller environment. It was still like a 50 person company and only two ballet masters. And, you know, they can't take every dancer by the hand and give them private coaching. (laughs) Anyway. um, So some of my friends started encouraging me to like, look around. They're like, it's okay. You can do a different company. You don't have to stay here. You know, you should look around. You'll you'll find a, a place that, where you can advance. And, mm-hmm. and so I did, I just started auditioning and I auditioned for Miami city ballet. I auditioned for Pennsylvania ballet, Victor ballet theater. Oh my gosh. Um, Carolina ballet, all sorts of places. Mm-hmm. And um, nothing really worked out. A lot of nice responses, but you know, no one had anything to give me. And so with my heart in my throat, I actually called Ken Francia in the middle of the summer and asked them to release me, would release me from my contract and I moved back to New York and I was going to be a freelancer. I was just going to take class and try to make connections and meet people. And I was still sending out my resume and my video, um, which at this, t- at that time was uh, VHS video cassettes. <laughs> Remember <laughs> <way>. those? <laughs> yeah, really? Okay, good. <laughs> um, and someone had told me about this company called Alberta Ballet in Calgary and Canada. And I was like, okay, great. Off it goes. I looked up, looked it up just a little bit, and Nico Nissanen had just taken over as a director. Yeah, we just and talked to him, him the other day. I was going to say, I was going to ask if you overlapped with him. Cool. Yeah, it was, it was great to listen to that conversation with Nico and oh, go nice. back. Yeah. So um, that was also a funny story because I, so I was in New York as a summer, and I sent him my things, and I got a phone call. I was on the. 104 bus coming uptown from Capizio back home <laughs> and my, my cell phone rang and it was Miko and he said well hi I'm I'm Miko Nies I'm the director of Alberta Ballet and your resume just landed on my desk today and I had thought like I was not going to get a job for the following season because it was the middle of the summer and everything would right. be done and he was like some one of my dancers just broke their contract and I have an open spot and it's yours if you want it and I was wow. like, oh, wow. can you give me like an hour or two to talk to my parents? <laughs> <laughs> and, um, and I went and, you know, he's like, I can't offer you very much money because like it's a really small company and this is like an entry level thing, even though I know you have a lot of experience, mm-hmm. but, um, you know, I'd love to have you. And so I was like, okay, I'm going to do it. Why not? So I wow. did my stuff and I drove to Calgary and I was there for three years. It was his second year. So my first year was his second year and um, it was amazing. It was transformative. I'm so grateful that that worked out. That might've been, I don't know, among the top things of, you know, fortuitous events in my career mm-hmm. because he is an amazing coach. I think to this day, the best coach I've ever had oh. um, technically and artistically and uh, yes, it was an even smaller company. I mean, maybe I want to say like maybe twenty five dancers or so at the time. Oh, wow. mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I might be wrong, but it was in that ballpark right. and um, unranked. So everyone got 
opportunities. And um, his artistic staff also, uh, Leslie McBeth and um, Joseph Kerwin was the ballet master. They were extremely like sensitive and observant coaches. And so right away I got some big roles that I never expected I would get. And I was probably not ready for, but they made me ready for them. Mm, and that's nice. It was really amazing. I have to say, like Michael was saying before, you were very understanding of what you wanted as a teenager. And I feel like, again, here we're seeing you spent seven years, you said, right at PMB. I mean, I know, and I don't know about you, Michael, but seven years into my career, I couldn't even fathom starting all over again somewhere new. It just felt kind of like, you know, a big thing to take on at, at an, a more advanced age, not like old, but you know, right. And so I just applaud that as well. And it just feels like you found such an interesting experience that you were maybe craving and something a little different than that PMB ranked company, big company life. Yeah. And again, um, it wasn't something that I, th- I thought that I wanted. It wasn't something I was specifically looking for. I was really right. just like throwing everything out there right. and then seeing what landed in my lap and what, what path opened up. Um, and yeah, I, I didn't, I don't remember feeling nervous about it or scared about it at all. I, I was just mm-hmm. like, I knew that if I stayed at PMB, that would be where I was and I would never go any further. And I just, I remember taking class and feeling like there's so much more in me to give mm-hmm. that if I can't find a way and a place to give it, I'm just going to like die inside. Mm-hmm. And yeah. So it was, it was exciting. Yeah. Yeah. So you had this great experience in Alberta, but that wasn't the end by any means. You went on then to, to join Oregon Ballet Theater and work with Suzanne Farrell Ballet. What were those experiences like for you? Yes. So my change from Alberta Ballet happened when Miko moved on to Boston. Mm -hmm. And so when he announced, um, it was the beginning of my last season that he was, he had taken this, accepted his job in Boston Ballet as a director. I thought, okay, well, that's a sign. It's time for me me to move on to um, mm-hmm. because he was really what was keeping me there. And I was like, I don't know who's going to come in and da da da. So again, I started auditioning around. Um, this was right after nine 11 and fall of 2001. And I started auditioning again. I did the same thing. Like I went to a bunch of places in person, sent everything around. Um, and again, got nothing. And most companies were not hiring or they weren't sure what they were going to be able to do. And so mm-hmm. again, I packed up and moved back to New York. And God bless my parents, welcome me home twice as an adult <laughs> round two of their daughter back in her bedroom being a freelancer and going to steps and taking classes and trying to make connections. Um, and one of my friends from SAB had done a season with Suzanne Farrell and I was having lunch with her and trying to get advice. And she was like, again, it was the middle of the summer and, um, She's like, it's probably too late, but you may as well get in touch with her company manager and just send her your resume. And so I did, and it was not too late. And I got a phone call. I had like come back, come back from taking class at Steps one morning. I was sitting at home. The phone rang, and it was Suzanne Farrell going, I just saw your video, and I was wondering if I could offer you a job. <laughs> I was like this is not happening. <laughs> this is your second time getting a Sight job unseen. off just a video. That's you must so have good. been really good at audition videos. <laughs> I don't know. Lucky, I think. That's I think amazing. Is right. And I mean, I just had never expected that to happen at all. And again, I did not know what I was getting into, but of course I was like, 
okay, um, that sounds great. I'd love to. And uh, so I did that one season with her. It was short. Um, you know, her seasons were always short. It was only, I think, five, maybe six weeks total, including mm-hmm. like rehearsals and shows. So we rehearsed in New York for four, I think we rehearsed in New York for four weeks. And then we did a week residency in Tallahassee, Florida at Florida State University because there was a choreographer there. She was on the faculty there. And there's a choreographer there that she, I don't know if it was the first time or not, but she wanted to have one of his pieces on her program. So it might be the first time that she was having a non-balancing work presented by her company. So we went down there for a week to do this piece with a, it was like a modern, it was barefoot. Um, and that was really interesting. Taking class with Suzanne every morning and then taking her point shoes off and being barefoot all day to learn this piece. <laughs> Wow, um, yeah. Yeah. So, but I did um, that season with her and then we performed at the Kennedy Center. Um, so that was also completely transformative. Mm-hmm. And, you know, working with Suzanne Farrell was, again, something that I had never, it wasn't on my list of like things I needed to do. But I mean, now I can't imagine how I would have been as a dancer for the rest of my career without that experience. Right. Um, we did Chacon, we did Who Cares, we did Ramona Variations. Um, we did that modern piece. What else? I think those were the only ballets I danced on the, yeah, with her, but like taking class with her, she had taught a couple times when I was at SAB. So I was a little bit familiar with how she taught, but then taking her class every day mm-hmm. for Ooh. five, six weeks. Yeah. Woo, it was right. <laughs> it was, um, hard. Yeah. It, <laughs> uh, she there recently was a uh, I don't know where it's even from but somehow there's a video of Suzanne teaching two girls bar and it's just come up in the past like month or so it's like a I think it's a social distancing situation that. they're like they're, they can put three people in a room uh-huh. um, but it's Suzanne's bar so I've been taking it I just do that video over and over but it's Oh my gosh. It's so great. And it reminds me, you know, I, I went to her summer programs and I did one week with her company. We performed in Gettysburg, Pennsylvania. Okay. Um, <laughs> but it just reminded me so much of like the sort of um, like so much of it is about your mind rather than actual physical strength too. Like it's like little kind of like games with the timing or um, the way the combination is set up. But I remember one time when I was dancing with her company, she made us do a combination where you did a promenade in arabesque that finished in Ponche. Like you were supposed to be going to Ponche as you were doing promenade. <laughs> oh my God. And then she had us reverse the combination. <laughs> wow. So wow. hysterical. I feel like she did that in an audition class that I took. I'm feeling like now, like the Ponche to the front thing, like maybe a bar or something, mm-hmm. like a Porter brought back yeah. thing. I'm remembering. It's intimidating. Just the thought of that. <laughs> right? That's bonkers. I love it. Yeah. So then how did you end up at OBT? <laughs> oh, I did that season with her. And then I spent the rest of that, or I did that little stint with her. And then I spent the rest of that season genuinely freelancing. Like I did a mm-hmm. whole bunch of record gigs. And I worked with some independent choreographers in New York. and But mostly I was just taking class. And um, But at that point, I had realized the freelance life was like really rough. And I wanted to be in a company again. Mm-hmm. And I hadn't actually started to, I think I've maybe started to put out a few feelers to directors, um, but this was still, it was like fall. And so it was getting not into audition season yet. And I was, this was right at the very end of my Suzanne Farrell time. I think I just finished the shows in Washington and come back to New York. 
and I was walking up Broadway and I saw this guy coming towards me that looked kind of familiar. And I was like, where have I seen that face? And, um, and then he, we made eye contact and he was like smiling and waving. And I was like, oh my gosh, I need to know who this is. Cause they know who I am. Mm-hmm. And it was Christopher Stoll mm-hmm. who Ken, Ken Stoll and Francia Russell's son, who I knew slightly from my time at PNB cause he would mm-hmm. come and visit of course. And so we stopped and we were talking and he was asking me what I was up to. And I was like, well, I don't really know, actually. I'm, I just finished with Suzanne Farrell and I'm, I'm looking around for my next thing. And he was like, well, I'm actually up to be, I'm in consideration to be the next director of Oregon Ballet Theater. And if I get the job, I might be looking for dancers. So let's stay in touch. And I was like, Oh wow. Well, sure. Great. So he said, you know, send me your resume. So I did. And I guess it was, it wasn't too long later that he officially got the job and, um, called me and said, I, I got the job. I'm looking for dancers. And again, like, what are you up to? And I was like, well, I still don't know, <laughs> um, but I'd, I'd love to talk about this. And so we just, we spoke a few times and again, you're going to laugh. Okay. So now I'm realizing this is my third job that I landed without auditioning. In person. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, That's I so funny. A video of something like some recent stuff that I'd done. And, and he, he looked at it and we talked and, uh, and he invited me to join. Um, and at that time, OBT wasn't ranked. And so, you know, he just sent me a contract. And I, it, you know, I had a moment of hesitation because, like, I'd already danced for his parents. And I was like, this is kind of weird. I danced for your parents. And <laughs> that, you know, was that. And now I'm dancing for you. And is this odd? And he was like, no, it's great. So <laughs> and I was excited to move back to that, the Pacific Northwest because I'd loved Seattle and I had visited Portland a little bit and I knew it was neat. Um, and so I packed up my stuff when I moved back to the West Coast. Um, and that was in 2003. So his first season as a director there, there was a whole bunch of new dancers, including me. Mm-hmm. And so it really felt like we were embarking on this new project together. And it was really exciting. Um, I was just, he would talk to me about his plans for the company going forward long-term. And I was like thrilled that I was even going to have any part in that. Mm-hmm. And um, it, it was, it was like, it felt like this golden era of collaboration and coaching. And okay. So earlier when I said that Miko was the best coach I'd ever had, I have to <laughs> equivocate that and say that Miko and Christopher together. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> I ever had because he too just pulled things out of me that I didn't know were there. And this was, you know, by this time I was 29 years old. So old to be joining a new company. At that age too, you were going to start having, you didn't know maybe, but you started having these amazing opportunities and that were ultimately going to lead you to being, you know, one of the most depended upon dancers in the company and, and anchoring the rep, you know, as a principal woman. Um, but so what was that like coming to that later in your career? Yeah, it was, um, it was really interesting because, you know, in Alberta ballet, I had been doing a lot of principal roles and then I was a soloist with Suzanne Farrell's company. So I sort of like started to feel like a feature dancer. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, but when I joined OBT, you know, we, like we were unranked at first, but Christopher said to me, like, you know, even though we are unranked, I, I consider you, you know, one of my, my, my leading dancers and I have a lot, a lot for you to do. And so I felt this like 
kind of responsibility, but also a pride that I had not felt before ever in my career, even in Alberta Valley where I felt like responsibility is even a big part and like, Oh mm-hmm. my gosh, I better live up to this. Um, but I still felt really insecure when I was in that company. But when I joined OBT, Christopher having invited me to join in that way, it was like a vote of confidence. Mm-hmm. It was like, I, I believe in you. Of course, of course you can do this. Mm-hmm. And that made me believe in myself too. And that was a really new feeling. Actually, I gotten that a little bit from Suzanne um, but really starkly from Christopher and it was a really beautiful thing. It was such a secure feeling to know that this person trusted, like liked what I had to offer, trusted that I had it. And it wasn't like a test. Right. It wasn't being given this big part as a test. It was because he really wanted to see me do it. And, um, that was really like confidence for a dancer. You guys know this. It is everything. Yeah. And if you don't have it, you can't create it. You can't manufacture it. It, ha- it has to be genuine. You know, you, mm-hmm. it always frustrated me when people would say, just be confident, just believe in yourself. Ooh, it's that simple. Worst thing to say ever. Yeah, like, <laughs> That's like telling someone who's mad to calm down. <laughs> it, like, you can't just turn it on. Right. It actually, I mean, I know people say that confidence has to come within, come from within. And yes, it does. But it also has to come from without. You have to be validated. And if everyone around you or if people around you believe in you, you suddenly see that in yourself and you say, okay, yes, this, this, I can do this. And then and it's there. Yeah. Hallelujah. Yeah. That. <laughs> Just, I love, I, it's, it's nice to hear people who are, you know, you're shaping the, obviously like the training of your students, but like the mentality is a really important part of things too. And I just think that what you talk just touched upon is really not something a lot of teachers even kind of contemplate. And in fact, there's a very sort of old school thing. Like when you brought up the testing, I don't ever feel like I do anything to, I mean, challenge is different from a test. A test, I mean, I just remember Peter Martin's like, in my view, maybe distorting this, Balanchine quote and saying it in his very Peter tone, like, you know, Balanchine always said, you put them in and they either sink or they swim. And I was like, that's just, oh, that's like, gave me such a visceral reaction of like, is that what ballet is about? Like, it's yeah. a, a competition and it's like, you either lose or win. I thought it was an art form. I don't know. Maybe I'm wrong. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. Exactly. Exactly. I, um, yeah, I, I, I don't believe it needs to be that harsh either. It's, yeah. it's so true. And um, I, I mean, I know, um, Michael, I know you've spoken about Susie Pilar quite a bit and how informed, you know, how mm-hmm. important she has been on you. And um, she was the closest thing I've ever had to a mentor when I was a student. And I went through a period when I was at SAB. Um, I think I was in like B2, C1, maybe the beginning of C2, when I was like really like shaky ground, um, definitely not confident at all mm-hmm. in myself. And I, I was like, I wasn't the favorite one in the class. I was, you know, can I really do this? Am I good? Do I have any talent? And mm-hmm. Susie, she was the one who like gave me that. Yes, you have this. This is what you have to do. She was very matter of fact about it. She was just like, this is the way you do it and you can do it. And this is how you do it. And you do it. I mean, it was mm-hmm. just like, come on. And that I try to 
retain and give to my students. It's kind of matter of factness about you have this ability, you have this capability, you have this potential, try to take your head out of it and just do it. Just dance. And yeah. That's a great transition to talk about teaching, which is what we, one of the things we really wanted to discuss with you today. We have a long list that we've all been working on in Google Docs about (laughs) Zoom teaching. So before we dive into those questions, um, just tell us briefly where you're teaching now for our audience. Well, now I live in Asheville, North Carolina, and I am a faculty member at the Ballet Conservatory of Asheville, mm-hmm. which is here. And I teach uh, the all the levels in the pre-professional program from one on up to advanced. Um, it's not a very, very big school. I think we have maybe 50, 60 students in our pre-pro program, but they're very focused and they're very serious. And we have a number of them that actually, you know, are focused on careers. Mm-hmm. And... Um, I, I love being here and I'm really focused on helping them achieve what they want, whether it be a career in a ballet company or a college dance experience or anything else beyond that. Yeah. So let's talk about our switch um, to online virtual teaching um, in the midst of the COVID-19 pandemic. Um, we have a few topics that we want to go through. We had asked our Um, listeners to kind of get in touch with us with some of their concerns, some of their tips. Um, And we got a ton of feedback. So we're really excited to dive into this stuff with you and also get your perspective on some of the things that you are doing. So the first thing we wanted to discuss is technology. That's kind of been, that was like the biggest thing we heard the most about um, in terms of bad internet connections, losing, you know, students going in and out it's not their fault, right? It's just the internet. Um, having the very small screen, not being able to tell if they're on the music. So what are some of these things um, that you're coming up against and how are you handling some of these technology challenges? Yeah, all of those we're coming up against and, you know, we're handling them on a case by case basis. Um, the thing with people's internet going in and out, they have to just rejoin the room and come back in and try to pick up where they left off. And I always just feel so bad because the kid is like scrambling to catch up. Yeah. Um, um, and so there's really nothing any of us can do about that. Um, for the smallness of the images, um, like I mentioned earlier, we, we set up a large monitor in the studio. I, I don't know what the dim- dimensions are, but it's to me, it's huge. And right. so even when the class has 20 something people in it their images are still large enough that I can make out what's going on Mm -hmm. and so I am able to see them relatively clearly and give them some specifics um, in terms of corrections Mm -hmm. Um, and what we have done uh, also we've combined our levels during this time so the levels so we have like level one and two together and level three and four together and so on so the classes are larger, but now we're starting to separate them out. So now we're separating level one and two and separate. So this, this, their image, their squares will be bigger. And I'll be able to see them <laughs> better. Yeah. I have a question about that in particular, because the studio that I'm teaching for has also combined the two higher levels. Um, but even though it's the two higher levels, it's still like 10 to 18, ages 10 to 18. Like there is a big difference between those two yeah. levels. Maybe it's not 10. Maybe I'm being dramatic, but right. It's, it's a, a discrepancy. And I know for those older girls, like you were saying, a lot of 
my girls, they're wanting to be professionals, you know, they're working towards that. And so I want to be giving them what they need in this time because I can tell that they're kind of panicky because they're also a little older. They're more understanding of what's going on. And then the younger ones, I can see having a hard time kind of keeping up. So how do you find a balance when you have um, kind of these combined classes between the lowest level dancer and then the highest level kind of giving them both what they need? Yeah. So what I've been doing with the lower level classes, the level one and two that are combined, my usual way of operating is to teach towards the middle mm-hmm. with this group and with the situation I'm teaching to the bottom. Okay. And yeah. I, I've been giving them the same class with very few variations through this entire thing because the level one students in particular, I was like, I just started having them this year and I'm very methodical with my level one students, very methodical. And I'm very slow, um, very very um, specific about how I want them to do everything. So unfortunately for the level twos that are in with them and had been advancing further, doing more complex Mm -hmm. exercises, they are having to slow down. But I don't think that's a bad thing. You know, yeah, I was, I was just going to say, I think that that's, you know, you can't ever, I mean, I could probably take a level two class and feel like I, I'm getting something awesome. great out of it. You know, the simplicity yeah. is still good for anyone at any age. Mm-hmm. It's crucial at, for everyone at every age, yeah. I think. <laughs> so, um, but because we have been getting some comments from the level two students about, oh, well, I'm just, you know, this is hard to motivate because it's mm-hmm. the same exact thing. So now we are once a week, we're going to separate them out. So once a week, they'll have their own class and we can move faster. But the level ones, I'm still, because I'm so also focused on physicality with them, like using my hands to get their feet and legs in the right positions. And I can't do that. I'm not going to advance them technically. Mm. So I'm not going to give them any new material or any new steps until we're back in the studio. And I think they're staying pretty engaged because it's still hard enough for them that it's not boring. Right. So that's how I'm dealing with the lower ones. Um, with the upper levels, I'm teaching to the top. So, and my theory with that is that the more intermediate of the advanced group, sort of the bottom of the advanced group, they're advanced enough right. that they can swim along. Mm-hmm. Right. So the sink or swim analogy. <laughs> I can, they can keep up, you know, and I'm happy for them to be pushing into like things that are a little bit harder, maybe a little faster, more strengthening. And I'm focusing on the most advanced students and giving them everything I can. I'm giving them, you know, we can't jump or turn very much, but I'm giving them a ton of strength building everything. So in a way, their classes now are harder than they were. Mm. That's kind of been my thought too. It's like that way that level will see kind of where they need to be in order to move up, right? Kind of like giving them, and I think they're the ones to just the slightly younger ones that are having a harder time focusing just because it's hard. This is hard to do as an adult. Like sometimes I'm like, ugh, this is hard, you know? So I think that- uh, things that are a little more challenging for them, even if they're not executing them, maybe technically perfect or technically the way you would want to see in the studio, their minds are working. They're trying something newish, and yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, yeah. Sorry, I was going to ask if you could offer further specifics when you say you said something about um, I don't know. Did you use the word conditioning or just like that? You that these classes, yeah, strengthening these classes are, are harder. Like. Yeah how have you altered them? Like what, what sort of exercises um, specifically are you giving that are going to sort of test strength and I guess stamina even maybe? Yeah. Well, since the class is primarily bar, mm-hmm. the bar is a lot longer. 
than it would be in a studio class. And so we do more repetitions. Um, Adagio is longer. Fondue is, I always do like a very, um, uh, you know, unpleasant fondue. (laughs) Uh, we do a lot more releves, a lot more exercises on demi point, repeated on demi point. Um, I do. I give them uh, what. What I've been thinking back to is my own experiences of a being injured and trying to come back, or mm-hmm. b being on layoff and yes. being at home and like maybe I didn't want to go take open class for a while. I just didn't want to be. I didn't want to take class, so I just right. do a little bar at home. What did I do? Also, I'm thinking back to how I warmed myself up before performances. Mm-hmm. How would I do kind of what, like a power bar to get myself really warm, really feeling strong before a show? Right. And um, I think some of my former colleagues might attest to the fact that I was kind of a manic warmer upper. <laughs> like well, my own heart. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and so like my kind of pre-show warm-ups are a little bit epic. <laughs> so I channel that again. And I remember what I used to do to keep myself in shape when I was on layoff. I would do like a lot of really fast jetés. Mm-hmm. Like first, 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 you know, really, really, really fast to keep your quick, tw- quick twitch muscles active. Mm-hmm. And then I would do a lot of releves because I know when I'm on vacation, if you let your glutes, your quads and your abs and your calves get soft, you're going to have a really unhappy time coming back. But if you keep all those muscle groups really strong, even if you're not taking class, you can come back to the studio and feel better than when you left. Right. Yes. So I've told that story to some of my advanced students who are like, oh my gosh, I'm getting so out of shape. And I'm like, no, you're not. All you got to do <laughs> mm-hmm. is do your squats, do your ab work, be really vigilant about it. Don't take it easy. Do your releves. You can come back feeling better than before. Mm-hmm. I also just, it's funny, you know, you said you had a great experience with Susie Pilar, but those are the, the, the two things she says, like if you find yourself in a situation where you, for whatever reason, you know, don't have very much time to warm up, she's just like degages and releves. That's yes. what's going to get you there. <laughs> yes. Yep. 16 fast on each leg and then another set and mm-hmm. you get yourself going. Yeah. And balance, balance. Mm-hmm. We do yeah. a lot more balancing too. I mean, I always give them a lot of balances, but now, because that's one thing you can do on any surface. Mm-hmm. and without much space. So every single combination ends with a balance in a different position and usually changing from one position to another position without touching the bar. Right. Nice. Yeah, I was I feel like there's going to be certain things that when they get back will be stronger. Like you're saying, I bet you that in a way turns will maybe be better because they're thinking about their positioning a little bit more. How are you dealing you mentioned something about um you're often manipulating your students and kind of showing them where you want them to be in space. And obviously we can't do that right now. And quite honestly, even when we get back in the studio, we probably aren't going to be doing any contact, right? So what are some of the things that you're implementing to help these dancers kind of feel what's happening in their body without a mirror? Yeah. Um, a, a lot of, Ugh, yeah, just a lot of analogies. You know, I, I always I have always used a lot of analogies when I teach, and I'm relying on that even more. Um, also, like they can see me, and I actually think that one of the benefits of this video situation is that they actually have to look more closely at the teacher 
they have to watch and listen more closely. Mm-hmm. And so even though maybe I'm saying the same things, the same corrections or the same instructions, they're seeing them and hearing them more differently because they don't have a mirror. They're not distracted by everyone around them. And they have to like, like look a little bit harder. So when we talk about sur le coup de pied, I think they're feeling it and working on it a little bit differently and feeling it a little bit more like, oh, I see just how firmly you have to wrap your foot around your ankle mm-hmm. now. And now I see when I don't have a secure bar to hold on to, just what it means to like really engage the top of right. my turnout. Um, so without having my hands to like come over and put their foot in that position, I just cue it and cue it and cue it. And mm-hmm. I can see some stuff, some really good transformations happening. Um, I have been really encouraging them to, when we do, we do a little bit of center and I give them like one pirouette or something. And of course they all want to try doing doubles in their kitchen or wherever they are. Or in like, triples or quadruples. <laughs> yeah, don't even. Um, I just, I want you to do the, the most pristine single pirouette that you can imagine. Yep. The most controlled, perfectly placed, slow revolution finishing on demi point in passe. And you will have control. And then when you come back to the studio and we have a good floor, if you maintain that, you can do gorgeous doubles and triples. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you just add one more spot in there. It's the exact same thing with one more movement of the head, right? Right, right. When I was, you know, when I was still dancing myself, whenever my turns were off, I would go into the corner of the studio and do like the just go single fourth, mm-hmm. single land single until I could be per feel like I was perfectly on my balance. And then you just add the slightest bit more force, the slightest mm-hmm. bit more spot and you've got it. So I'm trying to teach them that now. Nice. Can we talk a little bit more about what you were bringing up? Some of the external factors, like um, you have a bar, that's not a bar. You have a, a floor that's slippery as death <laughs> and what, what, ha- and each student's situation is going to be different as well. They might, some students have plenty of room, you know, or, you know, some I've, I've been teaching students and some of the, that are literally like, it looks like they have a two by four space in their bedroom, but they deserve yeah. to take class. You know, yeah. um, how do you overcome those differences? Yeah, I, I really don't, honestly. I, yeah, same here. Like some of my students, and interestingly, most of the younger ones have a bar at home. A lot. Almost, I've noticed that too. A lot of young yeah, ones. Yeah. 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 Well, that's cool. Um, they may not have space, but at least they have a real bar. But almost none of the older ones do. So I just tell them, I preface almost every combination like with, if you feel safe on your surface, try this with the half turn. Mm-hmm. If you don't, just do a releve. Um, I don't think anyone's on carpet. I think they're all on a bare wood or something. Mm-hmm. Um, but I just tell them like, you just have to, you really have to be smart. You have to use your best judgment. Mm-hmm. It's not a race. This is not a contest. If you don't have room and do an attitude instead of an arabesque. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just like the number one thing is that if you hurt yourself taking class at home, I'm going to kill you. They <laughs> 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 like, don't do it. Yeah. Yeah. One thing I've been trying to, I don't know, I'm trying to find ways to make 
lessons out of each thing. Like we're talking about a bar that's not very sturdy or it's a chair or whatever. I mean, I'm using a chair. I always just tell them, well, this is why we shouldn't be using that bar very much because we don't always have a really strong bar, you know? And then another thing I'm trying to use for the space issue. And I know that the kids that I'm teaching, they have, they do Nutcracker in two different spaces. One is a bigger theater and one is a much smaller theater. And so they have to adjust to that. And so I kind of tell them like, sometimes you might go on tour and you're in a smaller theater and you still have to make the movements happen, but you kind of have to do it a little smaller, but you still have to use that upper body and make it still seem like a performance. So kind of trying to play with that a little bit more, give them some something else to think about. Definitely, definitely. I mean, I think that this situation of having to do a bar in an unstable circumstance, like with an unstable bar and back floor, it's going to teach them more control. Mm-hmm. And that's so valuable. So valuable. If right. Like you have to use your muscles. <laughs> yeah, you've got to use your muscles because you, you, your chair is going to fall over and your feet are going to slip. And so I hope that they come back with stronger turnout and balance, really. Um mm-hmm. Yeah, I really do. And then in terms of like keeping some artistry going there too, I've, I, I'd like, I spurred, I got Apple music so I can get some new music for their classes. And so I've been giving them, you know, different pieces of music to, to listen to instead of my same old class album. Right. That I've used. And actually yeah. some of the students have commented, I'm like, thanks. I love the new tunes. It's really great. It's really uh, motivating. And oh, so and it helps me too. <laughs> I know, right? Yeah. So, you know, I'm deviating away from having to be all classical all the time and, mm-hmm. you know, playing some some fun songs like recognizable melodies that are really mm-hmm. uplifting. And just because I know how important that is, even though probably their sound quality is not that great, mm-hmm. at least it's like something like helping them just feel uplifted. Right. Yeah. yeah. You know, one thing that, um, that, is a detriment to the training in the classes is that you can't communicate. Um, you know, it's going to flatten everything about the way you're teaching, like your energy. Um, yeah. I mean, you don't primarily know if you're just being your funny. energy. Like it's, it's, um, yeah, you know, yeah. It, how, how do we get past that? It kind of reminds me of how, when you watch a video of yourself dancing, it strips it of any, you know, and I always would try to watch like someone I really love and be like, well, like the feeling that I get watching Jeanette Delgado on this video is great, but seeing it live is 20 times better. So, you know, being in a, you know, take me taking Suzanne Farrell's class <laughs> on YouTube is great. But when Suzanne's in the room with you, you feel like electric. So yeah. what are you, is, is there any way we can sort of combat that from a teaching perspective? Well, you know, what I've done is, um, or me and the director of my school here, um, we've had this past week, one, one, one day each week, we had each class by themselves, turn their microphones on, and we all just like got together around the computers, you know, like in our home, and just talked, and we just had like kind of a powwow, and just like hung out, and how are you doing, how's it going at home, what's hard about this for you, is there anything we can do to help you, um, what do you like, what do you not like? And uh, she made it fun. So like with mm-hmm. the advanced class, they all, we would sometimes in the studio, we have potlucks and everyone like brings something. And so she said, everyone bring your favorite dessert, like to share quote. Uh-huh. <laughs> and so everyone brought their 
cake or the ice cream or whatever. And we sat around, we did a little shorter class. And then we all just kind of talked with each other just to like, feel like we're a group again yeah, and reconnect and remember that we're still a group and we're still a family and we've done that with all of the levels. And I think that's been helpful to like remind each other that we're not just images, like we're really here. Yeah. We got some feedback about that too, of um, teachers suggesting that you still kind of do your whole routine like you would. The students would come into class, they would be chatting. So, you know, I I think sometimes we tend to like just join the meet the Zoom meeting when it's time for class. The students are already muted. Like maybe there is something nice for them to join the meeting 10 minutes early and chat. Like, yes, the teacher can hear you, but, you know, just to kind of still, because we don't know how much they're connecting with each other, you know, during this time. Right, 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 right. Yeah. I think our students are. <laughs> I think good. they're all hanging out on Instagram <laughs> and stuff. Yeah. Good, good. So yeah. Group, but, um, I'm sure they all are, but still even just being able to all talk together in one place, you know, maybe they're missing that a little bit. One thing I wanted to, we wanted to touch on was the focus, especially for younger students. But one thing I was curious for both of you, if you've noticed any students that are in a way sort of flourishing, I have a couple that are very, very shy in the studio and somehow right now, like without having, and like you going back to what you were saying, Gavin, about having just the teacher on the image, kind of no other distractions. I feel like they're kind of flourishing and finding something new and a new confidence. I wonder if you guys are experiencing that with any of your students. I I absolutely am. Yeah. I have one girl who is in, um, she's in sort of our just below the advanced level. And she was pretty new. She joined, um, I think midway through the year. So she hasn't been here with us for an entire school year. And in the studio, she definitely seemed like hesitant, um, Mm -hmm. a little bit questioning, a little bit um, scared to like embrace what we were teaching and probably shy and insecure. Um, But at home, she is doing so well. I am just thrilled. I'm so excited. Yeah. I, th- I don't know if it has to be with maybe she was like intimidated to be around the other students who were more familiar with our teaching than she was. And she felt really new. Um, and now she feels more safe in her own home, but she's being so like, she's right up there getting every single correction. And then she goes back to her sofa where she's holding on and she applies, she works on it by herself. Even when I'm giving it specifically to another student, I mean, all of the kind of behaviors that I ask in the studio them to do, she is just embracing it. And, and I can see, I mean, even on the fuzzy little image, that technically she's really making some great strides. Um, That's great. Yeah, it is. It is. And I can see in all of the levels, it's easy to pick out which students like are able to self-motivate and self-focus and self-correct and which ones are having a harder time with that. And that's inevitable. Um, I fear some may fall away because this may be a time when they realize that they're their draw to ballet wasn't so much ballet, but it was more the community. Right. Mm-hmm. And without the community, there's not much there left to pull them in. Mm-hmm. So I feel that may be the case for just a, a couple, but I don't know for sure. Right. Um, but the ones who are like really self-motivating are doing fantastically well. Mm-hmm. I think we have to round this out now. I, we could talk all day long, but I, I, I wanted to ask one more question before we wrap up. And that is, uh, what do you think both for students and for teachers are things that we're going to be able to take from this experience 
and hold on to even after we eventually emerge from um, social distancing and Zoom classes? I think one thing that I really want my students to take away is this increased focus on Mm self-reliance and um, uh, autonomy and taking responsibility for your work and not necessarily waiting for a teacher to pull you along, but needing and the the importance of like being charged, being in charge of yourself and your training and really, really taking advantage of it that way. And then for me as a teacher, um, I, I guess what I want to keep is this focus on the detail, Mm -hmm. focus on the details because to me, it's all about the details and there really are no details. Everything is important, but this is the perfect time to highlight them and really imprint them and strengthen them. Right. Yeah. Thank you so much, Gavin. That was all so informative, both about your career and then now teaching. I think it was just such a lovely conversation. We're so lucky you came on. Oh, well, thank you you. so much for embracing this topic and for agreeing to talk about it. And I hope that, you know, as dance teachers in around the country and around the world, we can all like kind of feel ourselves as a community and um, help our students through this. And I think knowing that we're all kind of in the same situation, dealing with the same things and that we can share and talk about it, I think is very comforting. I know I've gotten a lot out of this conversation and then we talked to Nancy Richer uh, this past week. So it's, it's been helping my teaching already. I can tell, and I know it will for many others. So we appreciate the idea and it was so great chatting with you. Wonderful. I hope we can keep this conversation going because I think the situation is going to evolve Yes, and the, the, circumstances are going to evolve and as it goes on longer, like for our advanced students, how it's going to impact their, you know, cusp of professional career mm-hmm. situation. So I'd love to keep the dialogue going as things yeah, change. Definitely. Absolutely. And like we were saying too, once we get in the studio, there'll still be changes, you mm-hmm. know, it won't be exactly like it was before. So we'll definitely have you back on to chat more about it as life returns to a new normal. (laughs) Thank you both so much. It's really great to connect with you. You too. Thank you, Gavin. Thank you for joining us this week. If you would like to support the Conversations on Dance podcast, there are a few ways that you can help. Click over to Apple Podcasts and leave us a review. Download episodes when you listen to allow our analytics to better understand our listenership. Join our Facebook group, Conversations on Dance, Friends of the Pod, or you can offer a donation. Conversations on Dance has always been and will always be free to our listeners. You can help us continue to create and produce this unique behind-the-curtain look at the dance world by visiting conversationsondancepod.com support. Thank you for tuning in. See you next week.